Under the Cortex is supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Does infidelity predict an unhappy relationship, or is it the other way around? Can a relationship recover after infidelity? This is Under the Cortex. I am Ludmila Nunes with the Association for Psychological Science. To speak about a study that analyzed couples' well-being before and after one of them cheated on the other, I have with me Olga Stavrova from Tilburg University, co-author of an article published in Psychological Science. This was one of the 10 articles published in the APS journals that attracted the most attention online in 2022. Olga, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Uh, hi, and thanks for having me. So I would like to start just with the main takeaway from your work, if you could summarize it for our listeners. Uh, yeah, sure. So basically, infidelity is um, frowned upon a lot. And it's often considered like one of the major transgressions in a relationship, a reason for divorce. Also, when you ask people about why you're getting a divorce, so many of them, I think about half, according to some statistics, will mention some infidelity. And so it's easy to conclude that infidelity is something that destroys uh, a relationship. That's very bad for a relationship. However, it could also be that Uh, couples who already have some problems, who are unhappy in the first place, that they are more likely to have affairs. Uh, and so infidelity could be a, rather a consequence or maybe a symptom of an unhappy relationship. So, of course, to find out what is the case here, ideally we would have like some kind of an experiment with a random assignment. So we would assign some couples randomly to commit infidelity and other people, other couples, to stay faithful. Uh, But, well, that's not possible <laughs> for the obvious reasons. And so what we, however, can do is that we can track couples' well-being over time. So we can look at how they felt before infidelity event, so how happy they were with each other, how satisfied they were with the relationship, but also with life in general. And then we can see what happens after uh, the event. And then we can also compare these trajectories to the well-being development of couples who did not experience the event at all. So, and basically that's what we did in the paper. So we took this uh, very large data set of German couples that was nationally representative of the German population. Uh, so we had overall about, um, I think, 14,000 people in the data set. Of course, not all of them committed infidelity. I think about 600 of them reported having an affair at least once uh, during the time that they were part of the study. And about 300 people reported being cheated on by their partner. And so every year, the couples completed some questionnaires about their well-being and also infidelity. And also a lot of other, other, other questions were included that we are not uh, looking into right now in this paper. So basically, we looked at the well-being, such as life satisfaction, self-esteem, uh, relationship satisfaction, and the feeling of intimacy, admiration for the partner, the conflicts in the couple. So we looked at individuals' responses to those questionnaires every year before the event and every year after the event. So the maximum number of years that we observed the couples was 12 years. But on average, it was less. On average, it was, I think, uh, five years. So basically what we found is that for both perpetrators and for the victims of infidelity, that relationship and life satisfaction starts 
decreasing way before the event actually happens. So the infidelity is actually preceded by decreasing uh, relationship satisfaction and life satisfaction. But after the event happens, so after that, we don't see much things happening, especially when it comes to relationship satisfaction. So on average, it does not really recover, but it's also not really getting much worse. And so basically that kind of tells us that, okay, most probably infidelity is just a symptom of a relationship which is kind of bad in the first place. Mm -hmm. So couples would go back to the well-being levels that they had before the infidelity, basically. So uh, when it comes to their personal well-being, such as life satisfaction and Mm self-esteem, so on average we found that they do show some recovery after the event. But when it comes to the relationship satisfaction, then it does not really go back. On average, they don't bounce back to the satisfaction that they had before the event. So were these findings unexpected? Did you find something that truly surprised you? It's novel. So this decrease in well-being uh, which precedes infidelity, that was not very surprising. So what I was surprised about is that there was not much change after that. So on the one hand, one could have predicted that people would bounce back, as they usually do when it comes to well-being. For example, there are studies on divorce, also using similar methodology, and then they usually show that there is like this deep decrease in satisfaction before the divorce or before separation. But then usually people kind of recover. So they're usually better off after than they, than they were before. But we don't see that with infidelity. So that was a little surprising. So I was expecting maybe more recovery after the event. Mm-hmm. And did you find any exceptions to this pattern? Yeah, so we, we did find some differences between individuals. So one of these findings was really unexpected. So that's gender effects. So what we found is that women who were perpetrators, so who committed infidelity, that they were actually more likely to gain in self-esteem and life satisfaction and relationship satisfaction after the event. So for some reason, um, they actually improved <laughs> after the event. For men, that was not the case. And uh, we can only speculate about what was happening there. So it is possible that maybe, especially for women, uh, the infidelity was a result of dissatisfaction with the relationship. And then maybe for their partner, that was kind of a wake-up call that something needs to be changed. And then maybe that was like a reason to, I don't know, work on the relationship or improve it. So that's just speculation. We don't, uh, we don't know what is happening. But yeah, that's what we found regarding gender. And then another characteristic or another dimension of individual differences that mattered here was also uh, the initial relationship commitment. So the commitment to the relationship that people had before the event, so at the very beginning of of the relationship, actually. Uh, And uh, here what we found is that people who were very committed at the beginning, they uh, were hurt most. So for these people, there was a stronger gradual decrease in in well-being following the event compared to individuals who were less committed to the relationship at the very beginning. And that makes sense because I think for them it was a much bigger trauma, probably, a bigger violation of 
of the expectations of what the relationship should be and maybe big disappointment in their partner. Interesting. Did you find any protective effects for the victims? Yeah, so good good question. So for like for example when we talk about commitment, actually individuals both victims and perpetrators or who were not very committed to the relationship, they recovered pretty quickly and quite quite nicely. So I I don't know if we should call it protective factor, but I guess to some extent, uh, expectation management regarding the relationship could be a protective factor. Mm -hmm. So the ones who are less committed had fewer expectations about the relationship. They seem to have suffered a little less than, than the others. Interesting. I want to hear about how we might apply these findings to people's lives. But first, we need to take a short break. 2023 is going to be an exciting year at APS. Mark your calendars for ICPS in Brussels from the 9th to the 11th of March and our annual convention in Washington, D.C., May 23 through 25. This is your chance to join your colleagues and the psychological science community in the coming year. For more information, visit psychologicalscience.org/conventions. This is related to what surprised you, but do do you have any aspect of your findings that really intrigue you that you would like to follow up to develop more to know more about? Yeah, so I would be curious to find out what is happening with uh, the gender effects, if they are stable or if it's some kind of an artifact of this particular data set. And then, okay, why? Why is it the case that then women recover uh, so quickly, uh, especially well, the women who committed infidelity themselves? Okay. Also, there are some limitations in this data set. And so ideally, I would have conducted or replicated the study without this limitation, such as we don't know uh, or we cannot differentiate the couples where the infidelity was in the in the open. So where both partners knew about that from the couples where the infidelity was secret. And I think that's quite important to know. I agree. So you had to treat all of it as if it were secret because you don't know which ones everybody knew about it. Yeah, so for the victims, we kind of know that if I'm the victim and then I'm telling the researcher that I've been cheated on, then yeah, okay, it's uh, maybe the partners did not discuss it uh, among themselves, but at least the victim knows what was happening. But for the perpetrators, we don't know if it's secret or open. So that creates difficulties in uh, interpreting the results. Uh, regarding the gender effects, the big question is, do women cheat for different purposes and then that's why they have different outcomes? Or does the effect of cheating has a different effect in men and women so the way they deal with it uh, might change the relationship well-being and that's what we are seeing, right? So that's the big question, try to differentiate where the effect is. Yes, indeed. It's also possible that there are some selection effects for women. So maybe that's a very specific type of women uh, that differ from other women in terms of their personality, for example, or values or something else that are more likely to cheat. Um, these are also maybe the threats that make them more likely to recover. So we don't know that. And yeah, that would be uh, interesting to find out. Do you have plans for new studies in this line of research? We do have some plans, but uh, we haven't gotten any funding yet for those plans. 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, we want to find out. So how, how well aware are people about the other partner's infidelity? So are there specific cues that people know indicate that the partner is not being faithful? And how accurately can people guess their partner's behavior? And then we want to go one step further and also look at whether there could be machine learning-based uh, algorithms developed okay. to actually help people um, identify the dissatisfaction of, the other, of, of their partner with the relationship including potential infidelity. But this is at the very, very beginning right now. Mm-hmm. And sounds like a huge project. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. This is Ludmila Nunes with APS, and I've been speaking to Olga Stavrova from Tilburg University. She is the first author in an article published in Psychological Science, Estranged and Unhappy, examining the dynamics of personal and relationship well-being surrounding infidelity. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org. It's never been a more exciting time to join APS. APS membership gives you free access to a growing number of webinars and virtual events to help you advance your career, exclusive opportunities to contribute and share your science, reduced registration rates for two scientific conferences, and so much more. Ready to join a community dedicated to advancing scientific psychology? Visit member.psychologicalscience.org to learn more. Macmillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology sets a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. One way Achieve does this is through new goal setting and reflection surveys. Pre-built and easy to assign, these surveys help students define and attain their own personal goals for the class while giving instructors insight into each student's academic skills and emotional well-being. The goal-setting and reflection surveys are just one tool in Achieve's suite of reports and insights, and another example of how Achieve goes well beyond just delivering first-rate class-to-class course materials. For a preview of Achieve for Psychology, go to macmillanlearning.com forward slash psych sessions.